In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I will talk about on next Monday's show is When Nietzsche Wept by Irvin D. Yalom. When Nietzsche Wept by Irvin D. Yalom. Uh, this is a novel written by Irvin Yalom. He might be familiar to many of you. Very famous psychologist, written so many books. Many of them are nonfiction, but this is a one of his works of fiction, which he's written several where um, I haven't read it yet, but from what I know about it, it's uh, Nietzsche, the philosopher, going to therapy, uh, which sounds really exciting and interesting. Um, and looking forward to reading that. I also shared recently about how I got to have a session of therapy with Irvin Yalom in, I think it was November, so about six months ago. Uh, he offers single sessions, so it wasn't something special that I had access to. I just emailed him and he responded. I was quite surprised and was able to have that single session. If you're curious, you can find his email. I don't have it off the top of my head, um, but I highly recommend it. It was quite an interesting experience, and he actually mentioned the book in that session as well. So um, I, I got this recommended in a way by him, even though it was a book I'd be interested to read anyway. So looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week when Nietzsche Wept by Irvin Yalom. All right, the book of the week from last week that I will talk about tonight is Rethinking Consciousness by Michael S. A. Graziano. Rethinking Consciousness, a scientific theory of subjective experience. And especially in the last few years, I've read many books on this topic of consciousness, a very you know important human question and problem that we have, but also a very difficult one to even define what we're talking about. And so as I was preparing for the show tonight and reviewing the book as I do, I recognize that it's difficult to explain the theory that he proposes in this book, at least for me, um, but I'll, I'll do my best to do that with you. But one of the issues we have when we talk about consciousness is defining what we are talking about. Anything we're trying to study, especially in a scientific way, we have to know what we're trying to measure or what we're studying. But consciousness is a subjective experience that we have. And even what we're talking about can be different depending on how you define it. But this sense of being conscious, being aware, being self-aware, knowing that I have a self or that I experience things, this is a subjective thing that by definition makes it impossible to be objective about in an essence. So we can't just study it in a simple way of measuring it or putting it on a scale. We're talking about a subjective experience. And so philosopher David Chalmers in the in the 90s, he described the quote-unquote hard problem 
of consciousness, of trying to describe this sense of why do we feel what we feel? Okay, so we have the neurons or we understand the parts of the brain and how they might do what they do. But as he says, uh, why is the performance of these functions accompanied by experience? That's from David Chalmers himself. Why is the performance of these functions accompanied by experience? And that is considered the hard problem of neuroscience or of consciousness. And as Michael Graziano actually says in this book, because it's a subjective problem or issue, it couldn't be, we can say that it's not necessarily a hard problem, but that's a euphemism for the impossible problem. How do you explain why you experience something? It can be practically impossible to explain. And so uh, in this book, Michael Graziano also discusses his own theory, which I'll discuss in a, in a moment, with others. And I liked his approach that it wasn't so much he saw them as completely competing theories, uh, but that there is a lot of overlap and they could be describing different aspects of something. So in one of the chapters, he doesn't go through every possible or every um, competing theory of consciousness or the ones that are out there, but he shares how some of them explain consciousness from different parts or different angles where there is disagreement, but also where there is agreement. So I did like that approach to looking at this topic because I don't think anyone is going to come up with some easy solution to describing something like consciousness. And my own experience of reading these maybe six or seven books, even more in the last few years is each time I can't say, okay, now I get it because I don't think anyone has gotten it yet completely, but I get different aspects or different perspectives or ways of looking at what consciousness is or why we might experience it the way that we do. So I'm going to read from the book itself, just a short paragraph to um, put it in his own words and Michael Graziano's own words. The theory that he has come up with with his colleagues is called the, um, I'm having a hard time finding, attention schema theory. Attention schema theory is the name of the theory he's come up with, which is this. This is from the book itself. My colleagues and I propose that the cortical attention schema has a particular form. The information within it provides a cartoonish account of how the highest levels of cortical attention take possession of items. There is no simple physical roving eyeball as in the case of overt attention. Instead, that cartoonish account describes an essence that has no specific physical substance, but that has a location vaguely inside you that can temporarily take temporary possession of items of apples and sounds and thoughts and memories. So I'm sure that was a bit confusing. And as I said, it's hard to um, completely describe it easily, but there is this attention schema. So he talks about models that we have in our brain. And really, when you think about it, we, we think we're experiencing reality, but all we can do is create a model of things within our brain. So our vision is, you can think of it in many ways. And one way is that, it, is that it's an illusion. So it's not actually what you're seeing, or it's a type of controlled hallucination. I think that was the words of Anil Seth, that it's a controlled hallucination. I can't say um, I'm seeing the things exactly as they are, but there's some way that this is how my brain processes what is on the outside internally. So we have these different models. And so 
the theory suggests that we also have this model internally of our attention, of what we are paying attention to, which often we think of the overt attention, like right now, I am looking at different things in the studio and aware of them, I'm hearing my own voice and focusing on them, but there's also covert attention, ways that we can pay attention to things without having to put our mind to it in that same way, and that there's some way that we can keep track of this attention. So I have a model that is aware of what I'm attending to, and so this, in a way, is what we experience as consciousness. And because I'm experiencing it within myself, it feels like it's happening within me. And so that's why I can feel like this metaphysical thing. I can't say it's part of my neurons or part of these different parts of my brain or my eyes or anything else. It feels like some experience within me. And even as I describe it, it, it does have some tautologies to it in the way I described it, at least. I think that's probably my doing more than the theory itself, but that we find that we can feel circular in the way we describe what we're experiencing. Because what does that mean to experience something? Again, that subjective experience makes it virtually impossible to objectively describe. This is why it feels this way, or this is why it feels the way that it does. So that's the theory in a not so clean nutshell, as I said. Um, but what we try to understand is how this makes us feel about consciousness, which he also describes how when we experience something intuitively, it is so hard for us to unlearn that or think about it a different way. So if I told you that actually when you're walking, you actually don't touch the ground, there's a new theory that finds that you're technically floating to some degree, and as soon as you're getting close, there's a little cushion between you and the ground, even if you were told this and it was somehow quote-unquote proven by science or shown to you in some way, you would have a hard time unlearning or seeing your experience of touching the floor as not being real. And so similarly, we have this sense of an essence within us that experiences life that seems different from physical things. So it doesn't seem like it's just another type of physical thing. It seems and feels like something different. And so because of that, it's hard to think that it's not that, that this thing I experienced, the way I connect and relate to the world, how could that just be like the cells that make up this cup that I'm holding in my hand right now? How could we see those as the same thing? And that's what makes it so hard for us to understand consciousness in this way. And so even he talks about how maybe there isn't even a hard problem to begin with. Maybe we think there's something to really get, but there could be nothing really there, there to, to look at. We might be already aware of what's going on, but we make it a hard problem. So, um, as he says here, maybe our task as scientists is explain why people tend to believe in a hard problem in the first place. Why do we think that there's something to even be explained? And so people fall on both sides of the debate, and of course, there's not just going to be two sides, it's going to be complex when you look at something like this, of how we understand our own consciousness. But I found interesting his insights in looking at a different perspective I never uh, heard of this theory, actually. I'd actually seen Michael Graziano's name in many books, but had not heard of his own theory or read much about the attention schema theory that him and his colleagues 
uh, have come up with. Um, but hearing that perspective was interesting. Also, uh, he talks about some various things of how do you create a conscious mas- machine or what would that look like or can we do that? And a whole chapter on that. He believes that we can, that we can create this type of a um, model within a computer that we could create this type of attention schema within uh, some kind of artificial intelligence or a robot and he thinks that is possible he also talks about in one chapter uploading our consciousness and this is something there's already science fiction books and shows and movies about this possibility but he talks about that and how he thinks we are a ways away from it because the brain is so intricate that we have come a long way in understanding it but still have so much to go and fully understanding the brain to the point that we'd be able to create a recreation of it even in some kind of digital format it would still be in his estimation a while away he does say that technology can surprise us um, sharing some of einstein's predictions thinking that we would never be able to measure gravitational waves and about a hundred years after he made that statement we were able to uh, create devices sensitive enough to detect them so he explains how we might be able to do that at some point and what he thinks about that i always find this notion quite interesting of uploading our consciousness because i think it's related to this feeling of wanting to live forever Uh, the death anxiety that we experience of not wanting to die of course from a biological perspective, wanting to, to, to keep living and to propagate ourselves, but also to stay alive. We have a lot that pushes us in that direction. And I think people want to upload their consciousness so they feel like they can live forever in that way. But I always think it's an interesting proposition because the sense people have is, oh, I'll upload my consciousness and I'll live forever. But the you, so let's say I can say me right now, who's talking to you and experiencing myself and my body and my experience, if you upload my consciousness, the me that's still talking to you right now won't feel anything that's there. That will be a different subjective experience from mine. So if you made a thousand copies of me, I wouldn't feel all a thousand of them at the same time. They would just be these separate entities. So it, it still can have some interesting implications and he talks about those what it would be like if let's say the great thinkers from the past or from the present we can keep them alive and they could keep talking to us politically socially writers all sorts of things how that actually might slow things down too in progress in some ways because for example language changes because of new people talking and slowly adjusting language but if we kept the older generations over centuries it actually might slow the way that language changes Um, so there's interesting implications nonetheless but this mindset of living forever always seems like i think we're missing what subjective experience is which is that if i'm experiencing something even if you copy me you don't experience that copy of yourself just like if they clone you I wouldn't experience the clones in a physical sense. There would be a new physical entity. And not only that, if we upload your consciousness, it could be not just your consciousness, your brain, let's say, at a current moment, it's going to change because our brain is plastic. Not that it's going to drastically change, but based on your experience, it's going to start changing. So if they were even to upload your brain and you were still alive, those brains would start to diverge. Quite interesting to think of how and in what ways and how much. We actually probably could learn a lot about brain and about experience and learning through through that. 
probably a ways away, but some interesting things to think about. But so there's a few chapters where Michael Graziano explains or explores some of these different issues such as machines and creating consciousness and what that means and also this idea of uploading our consciousness. And it was a quite interesting read. I appreciated his perspective and style of presenting the issues um, along with his own theory or his colleagues and his theory about uh, consciousness and how to understand that. Quite fascinating. You know, as I was reading it, sometimes I was recognizing these are some of the most intense or important questions that we can have about the philosophy of being human and, and being conscious. And I just wasn't even aware of them and casually just reading through some of his thoughts. It's interesting uh, to think of it in that way. So I, I would recommend this book if you're interested at all in consciousness and understanding it and hearing a different perspective uh, from an expert in that field. Again, that is Rethinking Consciousness by Michael S.A. Graziano. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book Rethinking Consciousness by Michael S.A. Graziano, where he shares his account or his theory on consciousness and how to explain it or one explanation for it, along with looking at different aspects related to that. I wanted to continue on some themes related to what he discussed, in particular, this theme of when we believe something and feel it so intuitively it feels so real that it's hard for us to unsee it or to imagine that it's not true. So this sense of our consciousness being metaphysical is something that people have felt for a long time and believed for a long time, and it just seems to be so real um, and even could be related to things like our experience of we have a soul and what we have in those ways, which we can't obviously prove, or the sense that consciousness is something different. Some people have thought we're foolish to even look in the brain to try to understand consciousness because it's something outside of the brain. It's metaphysical. And that's how it does feel. It doesn't feel to us like other things that we can touch or measure in certain ways. And so because of that, it feels like it must be metaphysical. I'm from the belief that our conscious experience is completely explainable in the way that it's coming from our brain. It's physical in that sense. Um, as I described, uh, he discussed in the book, we are so far from understanding the depths and intricacies of the, the brain. 86 or 80, you know, 86 billion neurons and hundreds of trillions of connections between the neurons. We are still uh, way far behind understanding all that our brains are capable of, which is still remarkable of all the things we build and all the things we observe the brain still is this incredible, um, really, I don't want to call it, not machine, but incredible development that we have, that we still can't fully understand it. So when we have a type of a belief that feels so true to our core, it feels so real that we think it must be something to what we're believing. But to me, this is always insightful to recognize our brain. And that's also another issue when we think about studying consciousness. Of course, we're using our human brains to try to understand the human brain and that human experience. So even from a scientific perspective and framework, we see that we're already starting in a bad place. 
if we're trying to be objective and understand something when you are trying to study something with that same thing. Of course, there's impossibilities of having biases uh, not be part of that, that study and that process. But anyway, when we believe something and it feels so real, it's hard to recognize the belief as a belief and not as some kind of reality. And so this doesn't mean that anything we believe is only some kind of social construction and there's nothing else that our brains do but be affected by culture and society. But it's not the other way either, that if we experience something, it means it's fully that thing and it's the only thing. Because that's something that people fall into these camps at times that you have to either see it one way or the other. And my account tends to be that there's balance that we have to find or recognize that there's usually both are involved. So as human beings, we have some innate machinery in our brain that is wired towards certain things and can more easily think certain things or feel certain ways. For example, it's more likely you'll have a fear of a snake or even a baby will have a fear of a snake, but won't have a fear of a gun because they can... It makes sense for us to have that evolutionary reaction to a snake, but evolution hasn't had the time to act on a gun being something scary or something that can harm us. So there is definitely things that we are wired to, but we also know the human brain and all brains are very flexible, especially because we are born so uh, altricial, so early in our development, our brains are still developing. We can see that one of the strengths of the human brain is that it adapts to the world and the environment it's put in. So it has to have that flexibility, and so not a lot of it is hardwired in that way. It can adapt to a variety of cultural and environmental experiences and circumstances which allow for it to survive in a more successful way. So we often will feel something so deep in our core that it could be hard to imagine that it's something social or culturally relevant or related. For example, money. When you just see money, especially of, of your um, denomination of where you're from, you have most people have an emotional reaction to it. And it feels so real. Money means so many things to us that it's hard to imagine that it's a social construct, that money exists because all of us agree to give it value. So in that way, it's a co social construction. It doesn't just exist in some... Um, essential kind of way or have some kind of essence that's outside of it. Yes, of course, you can say money relates to things like safety and security and getting your needs met and power and various things that can be very human or relate to how we feel and experience life. But it doesn't mean that money itself has some inherent value, I guess pun intended, but inherent emotional value or has to mean something. And the same thing goes with things like race where we feel that it's something very real in the ways that people can feel so um, in, married to the ways they feel and think about something like race that it has to mean something different or people are different in a certain way. And so we can at times judge something based on how quickly we react or how strongly we re react to something that this has to be, oh, that has to be wrong because I feel so strongly about this. How could it not be something essential, something real there? Uh, another area where we see this is, for example, LGBTQ issues. So seeing people who are together and people think, oh, no, that's just, just, that's just unnatural or wrong. And people feel something, they have a reaction. And because of their reaction, they think it's just 
um, the reality of it, not something cultural playing any part in it. And we're very good at coming up with ways of explaining whatever we believe or what we tend to feel. And so we think that it's just something real. How? What else could it be other than something that is really there? Um, but if we look at something like gay marriage in the United States, the t- percentage of people that are in agreement with gay marriage has changed considerably just in the last few decades. So nothing has changed in the essence of gay marriage or two people getting married, if you think it's just something essential. Clearly, it's our feelings have changed, or the cultural feeling overall has changed. And so Jung has the collective unconscious as a type of, we have our own individual unconscious, and there's this collective unconscious, which means it's something that we have without being even aware of it. Uh, And I think it has a powerful idea. It's a powerful idea. To me, it's more in the sense that there is a cultural unconscious in that we get so affected by the things that are around us that it gets internalized. And so we don't even know where it's coming from or realize it's coming from somewhere. We just feel certain things and think certain things. So I think it's more of that type of an unconscious, not that it's necessarily something embedded in all human beings that we all share Um, but that actually it's something that culturally we do have that experience. And then when you're eight and someone says, oh, can a man do this or a woman do this? You just, it feels like, no, of course not. A man can't do that or a woman doesn't do this or whatever it might be. And it seems like it's something embedded in us, but we're affected without knowing by all those messages we get around us because of that flexibility that I was talking about before. And so it's hard to hold these things in mind because if i tell you about someone else experiencing something you could say well of course it seems like they're being affected by culture or by things that have happened to them in their life or their own beliefs but you know that's them but in our own subjective experience the things feel so real that we don't think it's that we think well no i know this is possible or people have this and i might have it myself But this particular thing you're asking me about, no, this is real. This is my feeling, which is based on something true. It's not just an emotion or feeling or based on culture or my experience. I'm feeling something very real. And this reminds me of when I talk about open-mindedness, and everyone thinks they're open-minded. They think they're very open-minded, thinking about things. I hear it all the time from everyone that they're open-minded, but really what we do is we're open-minded about the things we think we should be open-minded about and everything else we just think well we're right so you're not open-minded about if the sky is blue or if today is monday for example you're not open-minded about i'm hearing other theories because you think you're right and so we do that with other issues as well so we think this should be this way that should be that way oh i'm very open-minded about let's say the roles of men and women, but then when it gets to a certain place, no, 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 see here, it's just, that's no longer right anymore. So it's, you think you're open-minded where you should be, but then in other places you're right. And so the very challenging part is to look at ourselves with a little bit more humility. So it's not that we just question everything we ever think or believe 100%, but that we actually do look at everything we think and believe and try to understand why do I think and believe the things that I do? And our tendency is to go to, I got here from a 
logical conclusion or because it's some kind of essential thing or it's natural or it's the right thing or there's no other way to think about it or this is the right way to think about it. But it can be important, humbling, to have that intellectual humility to think, well, it could be that I've come to this belief from some emotional experience, some cultural things that I've that I've encountered, some other type of beliefs that it feels this way or I would wish for it to be true. We often don't recognize how much we want something to be true, and so we see it that way. That's how you uh, make sense of the world. In the commercial break, uh, Amir and I, we tend to talk a lot about soccer, and we're talking about uh, you know Messi and Ronaldo, and I'm a big Messi fan. And so when I look at things, I know I always see it from the perspective of somehow still seeing him as, as better and seeing other people not as good. So I can try to pretend like it's not there, but I know that bias is there. And so, yes, this is like a very less consequential one where we're thinking of soccer and soccer players. But even in bigger issues, we do these same things. We want things to be true without realizing it. First of all, we want to be right. That feels good. So no one likes being wrong. It's actually really good if you can embrace being wrong, because if you think about it, if you are getting smarter, then if you're learning new things, your perspectives are getting more evolved in a positive direction then there must be things now that you'll look back on a year from now, five years from now, you'll think, I'm surprised I believed that, or I don't think that was a good belief or a good way of thinking of things. Yet when we're faced with something, we think, oh, no, it's not that. That's fine. All these things are fine. I'm going to learn. I'm going to grow. But this thing I believe is right. I'm not going to change that. And so, again, it's not this wholesale, just change your mind about everything every moment, but it's having the openness, the genuine openness Not just saying we're open-minded, but be willing to question the ways you think and feel about things and recognizing that actually feelings play a big part in that. I remember years ago looking at Jonathan Haidt's research on this and about how we think we come to moral decisions just based on logical reasoning. What's the question at hand? Well, this is the right thing to do. And purely logically, this is why I believe it. Where it's really more we have an emotional reaction to moral issues, and then the reasoning comes afterwards. Kind of like a lawyer that's going to defend its client no matter what the case is. We do the same thing. So, oh, you believe this? Well, let me tell you why this is true. And yes, this is why my client is right. Oh, you believe this other side? Actually, no, this is why this is the right way to think about this thing. And so if we can have that humility, it's it's you and it's everyone. We all think in this type of a way. We all have emotional reactions to things that then lead to the beliefs that we have, even the moral and political stances that we take. That can make us much more open to looking at that within ourselves and also being more open to other people and how they think and feel about things to try to understand where they might be coming from. For me, when we look at political things, there's a lot about identity politics that has its own controversy or people have different sides on that. For me, what's even more significant is how you identify with your politics. When you think this is what I believe and this makes me a Democrat or a Republican or this or that and that's why I'm right and that's why I'm good and that's why I'm smart and that's why I'm whatever else, you identify so strongly with those beliefs as the reasons why you're a good person or a smart person, then of course if someone creates or brings information to you that might challenge one of those ideas, it's not just challenging a thought that you have 
or a belief that you have or an idea that you have, it challenges your identity, who you are as a person. If you think it made you smart that you believe this way, anyone challenging that, you feel like it's basically saying you're stupid, you're not smart, you're not a good person or whatever else it is. So we have to recognize that we can feel very strongly about things, think about things, and it's important to do that, but how much we identify it is very important. And also recognizing that although something feels so real, that how could it be anything other than that, you likely hold on to so many things that you don't realize the subjectivity of what you think and feel and believe. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in this last segment, I want to continue on this theme of going from consciousness and the ways we experience that subjective metaphysical type of experience. And I continue in the second segment talking about how we can believe things to be so true because it feels so true and it feels like it can't be any other way that it's hard to imagine that it's not true. Um, To share something relevant to that that I've discussed before that many people experience that I think can be related to these themes, which is when we think we've experienced a ghost or have connected with a loved one in who has who has died, who's no longer physically alive. So I know people can have lots of um, religious beliefs about death and the afterlife and what happens to us. Of course, no one can claim to know. So I know if you're listening, you might have your own beliefs already. I might challenge them in some ways, but just share some thoughts on at least some of the experiences we have. Of course, I can't say every experience people have will be relevant to what I'm going to discuss. But some of what I think happens when people feel they're in quote unquote, the presence of a loved one who has died, or they feel like they are there, you know, sometimes they feel like a ghost or someone is in the room with them. And we we feel that. So it's relevant to this theme of consciousness, because there's this subjective metaphysical experience that we have, that we feel in ourselves, and that actually he discusses, we are very quick to assign consciousness to others. This is why things like puppets, or he talks about ventriloquists, work so well. Or even he actually shares, um, there are some experiments they do that, that are quite fascinating. I've seen various versions of it done, but he explains one that was done for him where he, he put his hand in a box kind of a thing, so he couldn't see his own hand. But on top of that box was a rubber hand. And he even said it didn't look, it was kind of too small, almost made him laugh, like how how is this going to fool him that, that this is his hand? But they, they put a ring on his finger that then connected to kind of like a rod would be connected to that same finger, the same index finger on the rubber hand. So they're both index fingers. So if he lifted his finger in the box, he couldn't see it, the rubber hand would move too. But he said after a short while of doing this, and although he knew his hand was in the box and this rubber hand was not his hand, there was this feeling like this was his hand. It was hard to uh, imagine. He said it was really um, almost an eerie experience, but it really felt like this was his hand. So we, we can see that these ways that we experience ourselves that feel like it's so easy and so real, and even when we think of someone hallucinating and, oh, that's so... Uh, quote unquote crazy or makes them so different, we see that our experience is not as solid as we sometimes might think it is, or as clearly defined as we think it might be. And so we have our own experience of consciousness and we assign consciousness very quickly to objects and to animals, 
and some animals I think are conscious, but to different things, we're very good at doing that. We, we assign this. And so when we experience one another, even if we think about what we describe in our relationships, and if you think about how you are with anyone you feel a, an emotional closeness with, you don't feel like, oh, I'm connected to their nose and their eyes and their ears and their physical body. Although because you associate it with them, it will have a significance and it can make you feel certain things. There is some way they make you feel that you experience them that almost feels like an essence or something different from something material or objective in that way. We have this emotional connection that feels more. There's something about you that makes you you that I'm connecting to, not just, oh, it's those shoulders you have in that face that makes me connected to you. Even if something happened to part of your physical body, we'd feel like I'm still connecting to you in some way. I wouldn't think, well, now you're gone because, you know, you've, let's say even people age, we all change over time. So we don't say, well, it's no longer you anymore. It's something different. There's a way we experience each other. And so what I've called this before is an emotional signature, meaning that when you interact with someone and you have a relationship with them, there is an emotional signature that they leave with you, that you feel, right? If I tell you, think of this person, you might feel something that they bring up or when you interact with them, there's something about them. And so it's not just this set thing. Really, I think of it more as a dynamic type of a thing because how you're interacting with them might affect that emotional signature at that time. Let's say you just had a fight with your loved one, husband and wife had a fight, and now there's a lot there, but there is a way that it's tainted by that most recent fight in that moment. So it's a complex dynamic type of a thing, but we can still say there's a way that that person feels to you, which I think is created by our physical cells and our neurons and our brain and our bodies experience it, but it feels like something metaphysical, something more than that, which I think is relevant to this theory of Michael Graziano of how we experience consciousness as something metaphysical, even though it, it can be created by the neurons in our brains. So we see this metaphysical connection with, with others, or we think they have this essence, which I think is actually a beautiful feeling in the way we relate to each other, that it's more than feels like just this sense of something physical. It feels like something more. And so what I believe happens is, so we have this emotional signature that someone has on you or leaves with you. Now, when they're no longer with us in the physical sense, they have died, things can happen that triggers that emotional signature again. And so you then feel like they are in your presence. So they're here because I feel them because you're feeling the way you do internally that you did related to them which was even when they were alive, something happening internally, but it feels different because they're gone. So right now I can think of my brother Parham, who today we interacted with a little bit over text, and I have a, f a feeling about him. Now he's thankfully doing quite fine, but he's here and I can still have that feeling of that emotional signature. His presence is here. So right now when I'm thinking about him, I feel a little bit of that connection of that emotional signature. My focus is a bit on doing the show too. So if I was by myself and didn't have to talk right now and could just focus, I could think about him and I would feel like his presence was with me. I can even think of encouraging words he says to me. And that could change the way I feel and what I experience and possibly what I even do because of what I hear from him. 
even though he's alive and he could still tell me those things, I can experience those things in a way like that emotional signature because of that relationship I have with him. So even when someone's alive, this happens. But then when someone has died and we have that feeling, something triggers them. We are predictive. Our, our brains are predictive machines. So something you don't even realize makes you think of that person. All of a sudden, you can have this eerie feeling like they're here. But really, it's not that they're here on the outside. They're here internally for you because now you're experiencing them again for whatever that reason might be, whatever possibly has triggered that. So I think that often when people have these experiences that someone's presence is there or a ghost is there or present in the room or with them or they're connecting with them, I think it's because of how we connect to one another to begin with that it is this internal emotional signature experience that we have when we are just encountering someone. So as when they are no longer here, you can still feel that same thing and think, well, they have to be here because I feel what I felt when I would be around them. But again, you can do that with anyone right now. Imagine someone who you know who's alive and you could probably feel something of what that relationship and that connection feels like to you, even if they're not physically there with you. So to me, when I was reading this book, it reminded me of some of these thoughts about our experience of one another. And when we think about how we relate to the world, yes, we think right now I'm in this room that I'm in, so I'm connected to the room, but still whatever I experience is inside my head. All our experiences happen within us, or I shouldn't just say inside our head. That's sort of part of this ways that we have thoughts of consciousness. It feels like it's happening in our head. Where is it happening or is it floating or what's happening? This ghost in the machine type of a feeling that we have. But regardless, I think I'm in this room, so I'm connecting to it. But still, our experience is always internal in that way. So even if someone is physically present with you, you experience them internally. And even if they're dead, you can still have that feeling that they bring. Not only that, your relationship to them can change over time as you experience life, as you work through or look at things differently. People come to therapy and talk about family members who have died, who have affected them in different ways, and the ways they feel about that person can change. The person is physically no longer gone. They no longer have any interactions with them in the sense that they communicate or connect in any possible way. But their feeling about that person can change. That emotional signature is not some stagnant thing. That's why I'm saying it's dynamic, even if the person is dead and you no longer have any experiences with them. People often say when they themselves become a parent, their thinking about their own parents can change or have a shift. So nothing has changed about their childhood or their childhood memories, but how they feel about what they experienced can change, and that can change the way they feel about it now. Or you learn something about a loved one, you know, you, did you know that your grandfather was suffering from this illness but never wanted to tell you? And so now you have a different perspective of remembering how they were or how they might have changed or you wanted them to have more energy and play with you. You're going to have a very different experience of that or different feeling of that because of what you now know. The incident didn't change, of course, but your feeling about the incident can change. And this is actually something that's very much a, a big part of therapy. People often say, well, what difference does it make to talk about my childhood? We can't change what happened and we absolutely cannot change what's happened. And our goal is not to change your memories in the sense of pretending like something didn't happen, but it's very possible that by talking it through 
looking at it from different perspectives, having different experiences related to those memories, what you feel about the memories, and then subsequently what you carry forward and how that affects your life can change. If you realize the reason why my mother hurt me was because of what she went through and understand that in a different way, it might allow you to not think, okay, maybe not all people will be that way, or I can trust a bit more than I thought I could, or I can take that risk because I recognize where it's coming from. But so coming back to this concept of when we think we're in the presence of someone or we experience someone is there, it's understandable because it does feel the same way. It can feel as powerful as they were in the room with you, which is why related to the previous segment's theme, it feels so real. It's hard to imagine that it isn't. It's hard for us to understand that our reality might not be the whole reality or this recognition that our reality is always some kind of approximation of what's going on out there. And so if you feel like someone is here, it feels that way, no doubt, but it doesn't mean that they are actually there or something metaphysical is happening, connecting different worlds. It could be a recognition of how we connect is always this interesting connection of different internal worlds that we experience. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.